0: Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
1: Hello everybody, welcome back to the Two podcast. I'm your host James, and not joined as always, by my good friend Timmy Long. Hi everyone. The podcast you're about to listen to was actually recorded nearly two years ago, Timmy, imagine yeah, that. Two years ago. Our
2: <laughs> very first live show. Sure. Everybody was about three or four metres apart. Up. Right, yeah. mm.
1: Outdoor up in Elizabeth Forth on Barrack Street, it was with the Everyman Palace for an outdoor uh, event, series of events and it was our first live show mm-hmm. and we were only doing it a few months I remember it was only a 100 tickets and they sold in like an hour yeah. and we were very excited about that but we got Nicola Talent as our guest and
2: a good guest she was as well she went into a lot of detail around what she does in Dublin with the Sunday World and she probably scared a few people in the audience yeah. <laughs> because she actually is ballsy she has, she's fearless like and she? She is,
1: she is a difficult job, but um, she's like somebody on a mission. But she's got a good conscience about her as well. And I've actually become kind of kept in contact with her over the last couple of years. And her own podcast, Crime World, is very good. And that's actually in Cork, they're doing a live show on Cypress Avenue on Thursday, the the 18th of uh, May. So, uh, what's that
2: call again, James? Crime World. What's the name of the podcast?
1: Omurta Omurta, which is like the code of silence in the mafia. So we said we'd release this Nicola Talland podcast to coincide with her coming to Cork. And, uh, if you're interested in coming to see us live in Dublin, we're in the Sugar Club on the 21st with our oh, 21st of May with Shane Carty and Father
2: Peter McFarry. And More. we're also back up there on the 31st of May with Alexander Ryan from Gost.ie and Frances Black, who everybody will know she needs no introduction. We're there on the 31st in the Sugar Club again. So there's tickets still available. So like to see you there
1: so ticket master Ticketmaster.e for us and enjoy this podcast with Nicola Talent and uh, we see you all next week God bless hi everybody what a day we're after getting for it again we're blessed um, hello everybody welcome back to the 2 Naughtys podcast I am your host James Enner joined by my good friend Timmy hi. hi everyone Rowan is not on the decks, he's on the cameras, Joe's on the decks and Aina's on the camera there as well. So thanks to everybody and everybody in the Everyman for uh, the opportunity. And look, we'll just bring her on. So our guest today is, um, uh, she's a journalist and a writer. She's famous really for uh, crime reporting on the Sunday World and her name is Nicola Talland. Come on Nicola. And you might be aware we didn't advertise Nicola's name beforehand. Because she might upset one or two people and they might be standing up in the gallery there with a <laughs> You can never be too careful, Nicola. Yeah. Sorry. You can never be too careful.
3: No, you can't. You have to be a little bit sensible, I suppose. Yeah. Um you never know. Um look. The chances of anything happening, had you advertised, would be fairly minimal. But mm-hmm. I still just have to be a little bit careful. Just always, you know. But um, You can't let
1: complacency set in. Because if you're complacent here, it might feed into another time and another time. Yeah. And before you know it, your guard is completely down.
3: And we wouldn't like to be egged. No.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or a hard-boiled one if it was a or big gangster. <laughs>
3: <laughs> or a cabbage or whatever, you know. <laughs>
1: But look, uh, I said to you before, there's easier ways to make a living. How, in the name of God, did you get into this line of work?
3: Oh, God, I asked myself that actually quite a lot. Um, I studied journalism when I left school and I did always have an interest in crime. I do remember back to being a teenager, I think in particular it kicked in and um, I did my journalism course. I went and took whatever work there is available because journalism is actually a trade. So you do shift work and you would work night or day whenever you can get it, you know. And, so when um, you
1: say you're working on the job, you're not like going to college first or is this part pass? parcel? Well,
3: nowadays, it sounds like I'm a dinosaur, but um, when I was doing it, it was a two-year certificate course. And really all you learned was shorthand a little bit of law and a little bit of how to structure a story. But now there is degrees and all the rest of it in it, like there's in everything. But mm. to, m- to me, the job actually hasn't changed and it is a trade mm. and you have to go out there and learn how to communicate with people from the highest of, you know, the high to the lowest of the low. You have to literally sit down in the streets with somebody or be able to handle yourself in a situation with politicians or whoever. Um you have to be able to recognize what a story is and um, you know, try and keep yourself out of trouble. Maybe I wasn't so good at that, but <laughs> um so then I just started doing bits of court like local court cases, district court cases. That's where you'd have had um a lot of kind of people entering mm. crime as such. Yeah. So we'd have a lot of people up for possession of drugs, you know, you'd recognize Every single time there'd be a mother with them or a grandmother with them, young guys, um mainly guys, by the way, as well, and uh, there would always be what I maybe naively at that stage saw as excuses given for their behavior, which was yeah. oh, you know they're, they've been having a bad time yeah, or yeah. they're addicted to drugs or whatever. but I think as the years have gone on, I've learned that that's actually the most important part of it all mm. and to, to was- listen to that.
1: Like did you get more of a critical understanding as you matured, or was there education or
3: Yeah, I definitely got as I mature as I matured myself, I did do a H dip in criminology um when I got into it proper. And um I think just from meeting people and speaking to people you get your greatest education of all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wouldn't be great with academics or putting my head into books and trying to even when I did my criminology, I remember wondering everyone else on the course because there were prison officers and police and everything. They were really worried about the writing of the answers. I was really worried about having the actual facts. I didn't care about the writing that to me was yeah. the job. You know, you become so used to it. But,
1: yeah. but I think when, you're, when you normally talk about writing in the, in the local papers for district courts and stuff many of the time we would have been in the paper yeah. or stuff like yeah. that. And when, when you're younger, you think like, oh, I'm in the paper, let's have a look, you know. But when you get older like and when that stuff starts showing up in Google, it has been Most pack. people
2: dread the thought of the reporter being inside in the courthouse mm. sitting at the back taking his notes, you know, because they know then the family's going to be shamed the next day on the examiner or the echo. Yeah. You know, and there's a bit of, it. it there's a bit of a backlash then, you know, oh, that's the family deal with the son that's, Got caught with all the drugs but that's the reality of it and that's that's how the world works
1: do you know what's you know what can, what can get kind of annoying about that you know like if there's somebody up in the paper and you will often see it this let's say Timmy Long is up for robbing a pack of ham a sliced pan about the middle car. Mm. I remember I was in court when I was on placement over the probation service and there was a woman in court for robbing cereal out of deals you know she was in her 40s now like mm. but this type of stuff that makes the local paper you think like what's the purpose of that yeah. you know the,
3: those days are kind of gone because the newspaper industry is uh, as a format is dying While the media industry isn't, but they aren't really covering the district courts anymore. Mm. So that, that's gone. But at the same point you make about seeing your name in the paper mm. the next day, it's now going to be online and it's there forever. Mm. Mm. And it's let, you know, whereas the paper would be wrapping chips, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, oh. you know, maybe not everybody would have seen it the Internet, you know, you Google and somebody goes for a job and there they are. You know, do you think think
2: that is fair? You know, do you think it's fair and people say, for instance, somebody may have done one or two bad things in their lifetime and and next all of a sudden that that story on on Google is going to follow them for the rest of their lives because Mm -hmm. I have tried to get stories from my past off Google, you know, because um, when I was going for a job with uh, a company uh, a construction firm I knew that they would just type my name in, and as has has happened you know uh, it's it's just I don't think it's fair that it follows people around forever either do you James? No like you should be allowed to move on but I think like
1: for a lot of the stuff I would have been involved in very little of it yeah. is online but I think for people in my situation now the younger people know they have it way worse because yeah. once it goes online it's always online isn't it?
3: Yeah, it is. Now, I mean, I have been contacted by people and they've asked me to get the stuff off and I have like if they have a legitimate reason for that. Mm -hmm. Um, We do have to cover the courts and we do have to cover. And I suppose we don't have time to everybody that's before a district court to ask them what their background is or what they intend to do or do they, you know what I mean? So maybe there is a place that there should be, say, certainly the newspapers have an umbrella a uh, organization called News Brands, mm-hmm. and maybe there's a place that you could be able to contact there and, and request it because there's a press Ombudsman and there's a press council. We're operating under a huge amount of rules and guidelines these days and codes of conduct, so maybe that's something that can be set up in the future. Maybe the three yeah. of us could... Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah.
1: Not about all. But um, one thing I wanted to ask you I was, I can remember years ago, well, in the 90s in Cork, right? There would have been a big kind of organized crime presence. And I remember there was an, a primetime investigation down here, right? And I don't know if you remember the reporter Brendan O'Brien, the fellow with the beard. Mm. Brendan he used to be, well, he doorstepped a few people down here, you know, that had big profiles, you know. Did you ever do that? Did you ever, like, approach of criminals on his front door? I did. What's yeah. that like?
3: Yeah. um. Yeah, you learn how to do that a little bit more responsibly than the first few times I would have done it when I was very young and I was working for the Herald. Now, this wasn't a big criminal. This was a couple there was I remember there was a story. There was a, a child had drank some methadone or something like this and had died of something along those lines. And I was sent out to the door to see, did the family want to make a comment? Like when you think about it now, but um I had a syringe pulled to me that time and it was pretty scary, but it taught me a lot yeah. mm-hmm. because my gut instinct wasn't to call to that door, but I was getting directed from mm-hmm. an office in Dublin what to do, you know. Um, How much autonomy do you have in that situation? What?
1: Which? How much autonomy have you got? Like, can you turn on and say, do you know what? No, I understand that you want the story, but there's a dead baby in the heart of this and yeah. this is not going to go down well.
3: Well, again, I think maturity. And as you get older and you get a bit of experience, you know, I mean, nobody would ask me to do that now, I can tell you. (laughs) Um, But um, kind of to the bigger criminals, I have approached them, many of them, um, you know, Daniel Kinahan, Christy Kinahan, John Gilligan. How do they um, respond to you? uh, Are some polite and some not? None of them have been polite, I have to say. (laughs) But you get used to it. I, a couple of years ago, was a, a criminal called Georgie Mitchell, the penguin, he's probably one of the biggest criminals that we have ever exported from this country. But I had got a tip off. He was living in Germany in this quiet little village in the Moselle Valley. And uh, I had sent out a crew beforehand. They hadn't seen him. My contact insisted he was there. So I went out with them and um, we watched him. We found him, which was pretty good. And once we'd sort of got the photographs in the bag of him, we decided I'd approach him. So I, he was walking up the street and I kind of sidled up beside him. Well, actually, I had slightly got the distancing wrong and took off in a run after him. So by the time I ended up beside him, I was completely out of breath. So I was, oh, George, <laughs> <laughs> like as if I was really starstruck by him. Yeah. So he, uh, he sort of took a look at me and I had this baseball cap on and I suppose he was just It was so out of place, like he hadn't been approached in 20 years.
1: He didn't turn around and say, fancy meeting you here?
3: He just sort of (laughs) took a look at me and initially said, I'm grand, thanks very much. Wondering who this one was. And then he went in under the baseball cap and he went, fuck you. So that was, uh, that's the usual. So it just sort of backed away. You don't really expect them to sit down and give you an interview. Sometimes they might. Usually if there was an interview to be had, That would be arranged through back doors and through intermediaries. Is there
1: an element of um, them kind of courting you for the publicity and the prestige, I suppose, of being named as a Mr. Big, as the man, do they enjoy it?
3: Like organized crime gangs nowadays. And we take the two sides of the most recent big feud, the Kinnahan, Hutch organizations, they actually have press relations wings. They have people working for them who are pushing their narrative and they're trying to push it constantly into the media. And nowadays because of encrypted communication, emails, etc., they're coming at you with a piece of information and you don't know who it is. It's coming. So you're getting like, you know, not that long ago, they would have had to sit down and meet you, maybe in a car park or something. Mm. That's been cut out. So from that, you're losing your ability to look somebody in the eye, to know who they are, to know what their motivation is. Because a lot of that they always have a motivation. Nobody gives me a piece of information unless there's a reason for it. And sometimes I'm okay with the reason for it. Um, sometimes I wouldn't be. Sometimes it could be trying to plant some information that could ultimately get somebody killed. Have you ever felt like you you were used
1: by a organized criminal to put something out there for their own agenda? Have you ever regretted putting something out there?
3: I would be really cautious, super cautious about things. I mean, like nearly, you know, I will drive them mad in the office because I second guess everything I hold back information until I'm sure of it. And that doesn't work really well when you're looking for speedy stories to go up. But um, I feel the stuff I do is just. Because it's the kind of the highest end of
2: organized crime, you have to be just super careful. Do you think um, do you think a lot of gangs both in Dublin are actually afraid to actually harm a reporter over what happened to Veronica Gearn? No, I don't think any of I them think are. They still have the capability of but.
3: totally and utterly they're chaotic. There are drug users there's I mean, actually, that's probably the biggest threat would be not somebody being organized enough to find out where you're going to be and do something. The biggest threat would be, you know, if I pass by some young lad on the street who's wanting to make a name for himself Mm -hmm. and you get a bottle in the face or something, and that's the reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. And that's why I would be very cautious not to maybe socialize in certain places or I'm just always a little bit odd. Mm -hmm. My friends are sort of used to me now. Sometimes I can just get up and leave somewhere or I'll...
1: Because you've got a big profile, like you're probably the main person, probably passed out Paul Williams always like when people think of crime reporting, they think of Nicola Tallent. So I suppose it would be like uh, if somebody was able to get an attack on you or an assault Mm -hmm. on you, it would be something that they could brag about later on, you know?
3: Totally. And I was only talking to a colleague of mine in the north, Alison Morris, um, who she'd be a big crime reporter in the north I was talking to her actually recently on my own podcast and we were sort of half discussing this and she says exactly the same thing but what she pointed out and I had never really considered was it's social media actually who's made you like for me it's always a job but social media is nearly made you into not maybe a celebrity but somebody mm-hmm. who's known whereas when I started off in the job I mean, bar your name been on the paper, never had a photograph of you. Nobody would have known what I looked like. Nobody would have known anything about me. Um you know, and now here we are sitting on the stage in Cork talking yeah. about oh, the job. Okay. Like, you know, it
1: is a bit strange. But yeah. how, how do you think um, crime in Ireland has evolved or changed since you began reporting on it?
3: Well, it has. Look, I think that um, when I began, and I began really reporting on the stuff when John Gilligan was brought back to Ireland.
1: What year are we talking?
3: 1998.
1: A couple of years after Veronica again I dead. think
3: 98. She was murdered in 96. Mm. So he went to the UK first of all and then he was put in Belmarsh prison and he was returned. Uh, he was extradited back to Ireland and himself and others were put before the special criminal court, which had never before been used for gangland criminals, it was always for subversives and many as a person from Cork, I have to say, because that's a lot of the criminality in Cork would have been around that. Mm. Um, but so they were brought back. And if you think about Gilligan within. Two years of selling cannabis, I think he was estimated to have been worth 20 million. But if you got involved at that level now, maybe selling cocaine, You could probably be worth about 200 million within two years.
2: It's scary money. Mm. It is. But there's a lot of blood then on your hands as well from Mm. that. And when you get in that deep, there's no way back. You know, it's, it's, there's, there's, there's a few things that, that will lead to. And it's either debt or life in prison, you know. And and debt is mainly, it mainly happens. Like if you go to prison and you spend the rest of your life in there for a murder. You're one of the lucky ones, really, because if you're at the top, you don't last very long, you know, and that's what I've seen myself in the last few years. Any criminal that's outside of the obvious at the moment, like any criminal that's at the top in the last 20 years, their lives are on track. constantly. But
1: even, in, even in Dublin, it's mad because you, young fellows now become very rich very quickly mm-hmm. and dying before they're 25, you know, like it, it's a lot different to the rest of the country in Dublin, isn't it?
3: Well, and they're living like, they're just living these mad lives. There's no, they don't think of the future. It's like as if they just are living for the day, spending for the day. Everything they do, there's no consequences because they're not thinking past tomorrow. Um, and they're users, big time mm-hmm. users. I mean, I'd know a lot of the kind of, uh, who I won't name anybody as regards this, but a lot of them that would be, be well known and you'd hear the names, they have absolutely enormous cocaine and steroid addictions themselves. And that seems to uh, it's like as if when you get when you get somebody with a, you know, a big alpha male type personality Mm -hmm. and you mix it with the steroids and the coke, you're just creating this monster. Like, I mean, some of them are terrifying, even their own families. You know, they're terrifying everybody around them. Their behavior is just so scary. Like, and they only come to an end if
2: they get shot or they shoot somebody and get caught. I can completely relate to what you just spoke about because towards the end of mine, that was the way it was. There was a lot of steroids, a lot of drugs, crime. It was completely chaotic. And you said something there and it just sat with me very well. You live for the day. Mm. You know, I always say it on the podcast that I never, I never saw a life beyond thirty for me. You know, I I always knew like my life was gonna end through a drug overdose, or murdered, or I'd be locked mm-hmm. up for life. But um, if there are any young fellas listening to this, you know, in a cell at the moment, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't it? Can it can be the same as me and James? You know, you can get away from that life. You know, I know some situations are a lot different, to others, but. There is a way out there always is a way out, you know.
3: And I actually think they have so much to give way more than I have. I mean, lots of people wouldn't listen to a bloody word I say because I'm not from that environment. I'm an outsider looking in and people who've been there, I think they've so much to, to give to younger people to try and steer them away from that life in the first place and what that gives to society, even if you want to talk financial terms, is just enormous. Mm-hmm. I mean, to steer somebody away from a life of crime, from a a life that they're in and out of the systems, the, 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 the court system, the jail systems, I mean, it costs a fortune. Mm-hmm. It's
1: true. And like that's kind of what, what we're trying to do, really, you know, like mm-hmm. people in prison watching this and we've had one person got out recently and uh contacted us, you know, he's watched, he watched the podcast inside and he thinks know that he can change and he he can mm-hmm. But one thing I wanted to touch on there with the drug dealing was, you know, outside of like the, the steroids, the muscles, the coke, the women, the cows and all that, what's the reality of all that is like people that owe you a lot of money, you know, what they're destroyed at home, they're taking their own lives, you know, they're probably beating their partners because they're under so much pressure. The kids have been abused and neglected. Uh, there's parents remortgaging their homes to pay off debts. You know That's the reality for a lot of people out there, you know. And there's a big issue in Cork at the moment. I know two people that are under first pressure from um, people, dealers, intimidating them because their sons owe huge amounts of money for the age of 17, 18, you know. Is that something that you've come across? Something Dublin too, intimidation on parents? Oh,
3: everywhere across the country, I get calls from people who are just at their wits end. I mean, that's when they ring me Mm because they don't know where else to go. You know, Mm -hmm. and they are they just do not do not know how to handle it. This is their kids are. You know, the kids are telling them they're going to be killed if they don't pay off these debts, and it's a real fear. Mm -hmm. It's not there's nothing unreal about it because you see the events that happened in in Drahadat and Oak. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. children involved there. Deaths owed, there's been horrific things that have been done to very young teenagers and uh, to family homes and and people getting firebombed and sitting watching the television. And that
1: that child was dismembered on Snapchat. That's unbelievable.
3: Mm -hmm. That was and there's people before the courts in relation to that. But that was a horrific, horrific thing. I mean, for me. That was a line in the sand, and yet life continues, mm-hmm. and on it goes. And each time you feel you've crossed a line in the sand, it seems to be another one. It's
1: famously, famously, Larry Dunn, or infamously, Larry Dunn, didn't he um, mm. um, prophesize that the next generation was going to be more violent? That was probably the 80s. It's every generation now seems to be
2: more violent, you know. But you're supposed to live up to what it is. Is they're just trying to live up to the generation before them? Uh, like the generation before them was wild, mm. but they have to step up to the next level to be a little bit wider, to be more recognized. That's how
1: it is. But I think social yeah. media plays a big part yeah. as well. Mm. You know, in um, Mexico, they used to never behead people, but you know, when Al Qaeda started beheading people and putting them, people, now have access to the internet. So then people get ideas from uh, societies and cultures that they may have never have seen before. So I think that has a big part to play as well. You know, people are exposed to stuff that's happening in the four corners of the globe, Africa, South America, mm. um, and stuff now is happening in Ireland that we would associate with, you know, Mexico cartels, you know.
3: And funny you should say that because that sort of that new generation, what I would see well, they're around for probably, what, five years or more, probably. But it is that it's it's the, the, the you know, the Instagram gangster is what they are. And they're showing off what they have and the girls and the cars and the runners and all this on Instagram. And it's actually nearly seeped into part of the culture here now. And that came from Mexico. Mm. That's where that originated. And it's and it's not only in Ireland, by the way, it's the UK and it's across Europe, you know, the Netherlands mm. and Spain and other countries that have a big problem.
1: Yeah. Um, do you know what else kind of would would change um, in, in terms of your reporting would be drug trends. And uh, something that I would be interested in is kind of the drug trends in Ireland and kind of uh, positioned in the geopolitical context, let's say stuff that happens on the other side of the world, how it affects us here. Mm. And something that's happening at the moment is the, the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. And uh, my um, supervisor on UCC, James Windle, he wrote a piece for RT Brainstorm, I think it was yesterday. But he spoke about um, you know, when the Soviets, when Russia invaded Afghanistan in the 80s, the Mujahideen, um, they upped opium production to help fund the fight. Same thing happened when the Allies invaded in 2001. But when the Taliban are actually in control, they suppress opium production. So I suppose while the Taliban are in control now, they've inherited, they have they've not inherited, they've overtaken the country, right? There's huge amount of heroin addiction in Afghanistan. You know, it's unbelievable, opium and everything. They've asked the international community for support in this. The Taliban will, make, will uh, decrease opium production. I think they decreased it by 90% the last time. So what could happen here is you could have a drought, or uh, gangsters might stockpile, but they will run out. But one thing that might happen, or that is an increase in fentanyl and other synthetic, substances you know so that's one way it could change if you have if if there's because nearly all the world's heroin comes from afghanistan so if the taliban have stopped the production of it then they're going to look for alternatives outside of that then if there is another invasion they will up production and you could see europe flooded with heroin again you know so it's interesting to see how we can be met with the realities of stuff that happens on the other side of the world Do you uh, liaise with correspondents in other jurisdictions as well?
3: Most definitely. And funny, the Taliban thing is never, it's never as black and white as it appears when it comes to these terrorist organizations because the Taliban have funded themselves from heroin production. Mm -hmm. And they, the when they did slow down the heroin production the last time, was only for one year before they were invaded by the Americans. When they were trying, they were coming under
4: pressure. So
0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
3: You know, I was reading a little bit about it and whatever, you know, will they move into... Making the likes of the fentanyl and start selling that. They'll need to be funded. Mm. Like all the terrorist groups across the world have been funded by drugs. FARC in Colombia were funded by, by cocaine. The few hair tools. Sorry. Exactly. There's a few hair tools who, who always put out their PR agents to say they hated it and all the rest of it. But it's all, it's all very sort of complex. And, and, um, I find it, uh, Interesting to keep a broad view on what's going on elsewhere, because, you know, that's when you can start to properly learn what it's all about. What is a You know, a bag of heroin being sold in the streets about what is a line of cocaine being sold about? And, and do do people who buy it understand where their money is going to and what's happening with it? It's not just going into the luxury villas of the drug barons. It's also going into the hands of terrorists. And uh, for the purchase of weapons and bombs and everything else. So, yeah, it's true. Like, if
1: you, uh, it's very easy for people to look at people that use drugs like heroin and say it's dirty, how can they use that stuff, blah, blah, blah. But cocaine comes from South America mainly. There's children being slaughtered for that too. There's women and children being slaughtered for that too. And if you're snorting off the cistern of a toilet in the inner city here, um, the amount of devastation that has to happen. So you can get that, and the system, mm-hmm. like people can be oblivious to that, you know. And I, I've said it before. I remember being back at parties in my using days. Now, if I would, was after scrubbing myself up and I went out to the pub, which would have been very rare, but uh, back to a gaff to be snorting cork off the table, lecturing me about drugs because my drug was heroin, you know, mm-hmm. that
2: that happens today still, like that was all, that was early in the that was early on though when cork, like when heroin came to cork. Is probably still stigmatized today, though. Well, it's not as bad as it was before. You know, it's not but as you bad. Know, you it's could you could have people that use cocaine,
1: right, yeah. sitting around yeah. bad people that use heroin. Well, look,
2: look. listen, focus. Cocaine is probably the biggest problem we have in this country mm-hmm. at the moment between cocaine and crack. You know, they like the crack cocaine is uh, like from my own experience, is Once you start trying it. You know, it just takes its own route and um becoming a and causes well. its own problems, oh. like you know, but um let's drag it on a small bit there. I wanna start talking about something that I think is very important, right? It's your podcast, right? You wrote a book a few years ago called The Witness. A great book. I read it when I was in prison, right? But you made a podcast about it, um and Joey O'Callaghan is is the guy's name, and I think that was probably one of the best podcasts I've listened to. You know, can you tell the people in the audience a little bit about it and Joy? So
3: Joey O'Callaghan was a guy I met in 2012 initially, and uh, he had given evidence in a gangland trial and a murder trial some years previous and disappeared into the witness protection program. He was only 19 when he gave evidence in a court. And I often wondered about him and what had happened to him. And they were two really serious criminals. Brian Kenney and Thomas Hinchin, and they'd murdered a young guy called Jonathan O'Reilly. And. Um, like he was so brave to stand up in court to them and so young and all the rest of it, when people go into the witness protection program, there's actually laws in place for you not to go looking for them, so they just go missing. But I'd had contacts with um, other people who'd been on the witness protection and they weren't too happy about the aftercare, etc. And I just did wonder and I eventually found and got in contact with his mother and uh, Joey had indeed had an awful time after it, but I met him and um, our relationship started there. He was a really good guy who had got stuck in a really bad circumstance and couldn't see a way out of it. And he was used and abused by Brian Kenny. He was literally removed from his family and moved into Kenny's own compound and he was you know, turned into a drug dealer and, you know, um, a thief and everything else. And he had an amazing ability to tell a story from the beginning. From the first time I met him, he had this incredible ability. Sometimes people just can't tell their stories. They just don't have the therapy or Mm. the education or the language or whatever it is. And you're trying to drag information out of them with joey it just flowed from day one and i found him very vivid in his descriptions of everything and um anyway we just kept in contact and then in recent years he was in a place that he had been through a year's therapy in the priory and had become even more able to tell his story because of that he would a full understanding of what had happened to him and he'd been groomed which is what really is going on these days um So we did the book and then we kind of like, I love podcasting as you guys do. It's brilliant. But sort of wondered, well, how do you podcast somebody who, you know, who can't really be identified? Yeah. But at the same time, your voice, like if you couldn't see me, I could Mm -hmm. be anybody. Do you know what I mean? Or if you had never seen me, a voice is your voice. So. We decided we'd try it and we'd see how we got on. And it was COVID and lockdowns and all the rest of this sort of stuff. But eventually we created what was really quite raw. There was no major Well, there is production, obviously going in in the background. The production is allowing him to tell a story without putting in, without, you know, me jumping in or the producer Ian Mullaney jumping in. We sort of sat back as much as we could and allowed him to tell a story. And I think it gives you this almost ringside seat into what it was like. Mm. And I mean, they were the days of Marlowe Highland. He was involved. He met Marlowe. He was, this was major league stuff and a child within it. And for me, the importance of the story is that it just shows how the child feels trapped there and for so many reasons. And it maybe might give us a window of understanding about how to help more kids out no, um, did uh, yes. you ever Sean Redmond?
1: Yes. university Limerick, but he did a great report. You know so how children get caught up in gangs and how difficult it can be to get out of them. you know? But mm. will I give the audience an overview of the yeah, podcast? Yeah, absolutely. And I'd encourage everybody to to go and listen to it. It's the number one podcast in Ireland at the moment. The very top of the charts. So well done. I'd say you're very Thanks. proud of it. <laughs> I am, yeah. But um, Joey was groomed by the milkman. Mm. Um, the milkman was delivering milk by heroin as well, and um. They took Joey on the milk round and before Joey knew it he was passing parcels through the leather box with the yeah. milk. He was being raped by this man as well. And eventually he took uh, he took him in full time. Mm. The mother was naive, I suppose, mm. but innocent at the same time, you know. And um it just led got progressively worse. He was involved in armed robberies, he seen all that. The turning point was when um they murdered somebody mm. outside they murdered for prison. Mm. And Joey went to the guards, and he escaped. Yeah. But it's amazing, amazing. He says it in his own words, yeah. which is so unique.
2: Mm-hmm. But he was actually, he had a full addiction to heroin, and to cocaine at the age of 13. This guy was giving him cocaine on a daily basis to keep him awake, to answer phones. Do you know, there was a heroin phone, there was a crack phone, there was a cocaine phone. And all he was doing was answering phones and bagging drugs all day long. You know, for this guy, and this fellow was a full-on heroin addict towards the end. Mm-hmm. You know, he was destroyed. But like, as you're listening to the story, you could see that this young fellow was—you could see that he—he—he he, he knew what he was doing was wrong, but he couldn't get out of the situation because there was threats made against his family that his family would be killed. You know, if if he didn't continue doing what he was doing, and. Uh, as, as as anybody knows, you do what you can for your family, you know, to protect them. But it all kind of fell apart then when, when, um at the end, when they killed this guy, as James said, and his life was bad enough as it was, but it actually became worse mm. when he went to the criminal. The guards the, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah. let him down, didn't they? But they, they did. They did. Yeah. But do you know what I got from, from that? There was one guard, right? He was actually in the program at the time, and your man uh the guards that was in charge of the case, his name was Toddy, Toddy what?
3: Toddy O'Loughlin, yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, he asked him to um did he want to go back to school to do his junior sort and he would sit inside and the, the one of the guards would sit in the, the stadium what was this? The Greyhound Stadium or something like that. And they'd go over the the junior sort material and they'd do answers and, and they brought an examiner into the, the guard station then to examine him while he done his this junior sort like I thought the compassion over the guards then for that like so, particular, this one guard, that was...
3: It can be a bad organization, the guards, but there are good people in it. And um, I think individuals make a difference rather than sometimes the organization. In Joey's case, he was so young. And what people don't realize is when you give, when you give testimony in court and you're on the witness protection program, as soon as you're done, you're signed off the program and you're sent off to, with a new identity, a new social security number, and to a new country and we have partner countries all over the world like plenty of people from witness protection in australia for example are here living under assumed identities and that's all very well if you have the maturity and probably if you have the support system around you because he was too young he wasn't married he'd know like a lot of people go are signed off the witness protection with a wife and kids or with a husband or whatever um he'd nobody and he had to go on his own and i don't think he'd got over the whole psychological trauma of all the rape and all he'd been through and he just couldn't cope. Mm. But they have this attitude that it's one program fits all Mm. and it doesn't. And it's just trying to, you know, show that maybe we need to treat everybody as an individual, even in a program like that, we need to, you know, it's not possible that everybody will, Get on OK afterwards. Mm. But when you think
1: of the amount of lives he's probably saved mm. by closing down that criminal network, um, like when you think about it, like it'd be very hard to find this another story that has experienced so much trauma in such a short period of time, like he was after being through so much and then to be just basically used by the guards and the courts to get the convictions and then kind of, OK, go on about your business. Here's a passport in a new country, you know?
3: You see, that's where I kind of really felt a connection with Joey and decided I was going to carry this through all the way, this story, because I would have championed, you know, that narrative, come forward, people come forward and give evidence and people, you know, and listen, the Witness Protection Program is one of the strongest arms we have in this state for fighting organized crime. It's really necessary. But at the same time, um, I just, the idea for me, I felt sick that the state had left them the way it had, as opposed to individual guards. I don't think any individual guard did it. I think it was the state and the way we run that, that we had stood back. You know, you're looking for people in those dangerous circumstances to stand up in court and face down the most evil, dangerous people. And you're supposed to, as a society, stand shoulder to shoulder with them and you're supposed to be there for them, but instead, we're just dropping them after it and letting them paddle their own canoe. And I just think it's wrong. Mm.
1: The saddest part of that podcast, I thought, was you know, when, when the guards brought him to the house and this is right, Joe, you get your belongings. Mm-hmm. He had no belongings. What he had was a bed, a table, a chair, and a scales to bag. He had no clothes or possessions or anything. And he was like, I, I have nothing. And he didn't realize like how bad he had it. Mm-hmm. When he realized then like that, he probably should have claws. He probably should have. It'd be a PlayStation or the Telios, a radio. He had nothing you know, and that was just so sad. So I hope he's done well for himself today. Mm. You know, I wish him that but the best. Yeah. He's one of the most resilient characters I've ever come across in my life. And,
3: um, and he's doing a great service, really, because he really is. And Toddy O'Loughlin pointed that out to me, wrote a letter to him. Lovely letter. Yeah. But he is continuing to do a service by, you know, hopefully a lot of people in education have said to me that They'd like to see the podcast, his story used as a kind of a, you know, wherever you could to, to get kids to listen to it. Mm-hmm. This is the reality of this yeah. world. Yeah. And this is this is really this mm-hmm. is what it's like. It's not about flashing around Dubai and in, in, in exactly. Balenciaga runners yeah. or whatever.
2: Does it do you hear many stories like that? You know, as severe as his. Is it actually still happening? You know, like.
3: Definitely. Um, by the time people would maybe come to me, they're desperate. Yeah. Like they've tried everywhere else. I mean, nobody from that world wants to come to the media. Mm. I mean, I'd be a pariah. I'd be seen as a pariah. I'm called a rat mm. regularly, which always actually amuses me mm. because uh, even that whole concept, I think, is so empowering to the individuals at the top of and the ones who are making the money, that whole Concept. If I could click my fingers and change anything, it would be that cult-like belief that there are, you know, everyone's a rat because they speak up. Mm-hmm. That's just, that silence is empowering the people who are benefiting and only them and nobody else. But uh so, you know, when people come to me, they would be described as rats. I'm described as a rat. Everyone's rats. Rats everywhere. Right? So it's fine. It doesn't bother me. It just find it just, you know, I just find it amazing that it, it is so deeply embedded in communities. But uh, when they do come, they're desperate and they'll, you know, they're looking for something. They don't know what they're looking for. Sometimes I could. Do something for them mostly, I probably can't. I can try and steer them in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they're in debt, I would always say to them to go to the guards rats as well, I think, by the way, but anyway, (laughs) you know, they'll just, they'll never kind of, uh, you know, they'll just sort of advise them on what's the best way out of a debt because the debt, I mean, that world has no receipts. There's no, even if you pay 10,000 today, they could come back and look for another 10 off you tomorrow, especially if they think, happens all the time because they think you have the money. Um, Mm. And I can see why parents pay it. If it was my own children that were going to be kneecapped, I would, you know, do anything to stop that. And as you
1: said a while ago, they're not idle threats. And when Joey O'Callaghan was being threatened that his family was going to be murdered, these came from people he knew was potential. They have committed murder already. So he had no reason to doubt them
3: at all. You know, Mm -hmm. but um, how
1: did you get into the podcasting?
3: Well, um, I actually started doing some stuff like on Eamon Dunphy's mm. thing, The Stand. And he asked me to come on and do a bit of crime. And I had uh, done a bit of audio, quite like audio. Um, but I did that for about two years and I learned quite a lot from Eamon. I have to say I learned a, a lot, especially to just relax and to not be concerned about, like, I think the first time I had to do an interview on radio, I nearly got sick. Oh, yeah. I nearly got sick. The idea of, oh, my God. I'm going to say. It's quite different just, to writing, like, isn't it? Totally different. Yeah. Totally different than television. You're just like a, ra- a rabbit caught in the headlights, the cameras and the lights and everything. Still hate that, actually. I know how you no. feel. <laughs> yeah.
2: I can I, definitely relate to you, dear. Yeah. No, I don't like the
3: cameras. I don't even like getting my photograph. I've never got used to that. Just some people are more natural with that. But, um, so I did learn a good bit of And then I wanted to, I wanted to do a crime one. And because sort of this, um, it sort of broadens what you have to say in a way. Like I would have been, the Sunday World is a particular product, which is very much in your face. You know, photograph of somebody. You know, big headline. Is this the beginning of it? Yeah. <laughs> we better be better. Hurry on here now to get get you all to the the pub. But um, I think you have an ability to to come across a little bit more empathetic, and you can you can explain yourself better. You have a little bit more time to do it. Like, you know, a front page story uh and then a spread, as we call it in the Sunday world, is a thousand words. And that's really difficult to try and get anything across that isn't a fact. You cannot tackle the problems of the world. Or and crime. I've heard you speaking before saying that um you might write the article
1: or the story in the mm. paper, but you don't. Like the editor chooses the headline. Is that correct?
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So like uh, people might associate you with the headlines. Well and I did, to be honest with you. Yeah. you know, I had um, it's all right. a perception of you, you know, hey. based off the underworld, which I didn't really like. But you now, mm. as I come into recovery, I could see the damage, the negativity in the stories and mm. uh, and I understand like that the, I know underneath all this glamorous stuff was the, the realities of the Joeys and all that, like mm. but um when I seen you on the Tommy mm. Ternan show and then I listened listening to your own podcast with Trina actually who was mm. there, but you mm. know, i you get began, it, it it done you more justice, I think, because mm. people get to see the real Nicola and, um you know, the, the amount of compassion you have, and that came through as well, came across as well but with the Joey piece, you know. So I think it's of great benefit to you, you know, that people see, like, you're not a one dimensional Sunday world tabloid writer. Yeah. There's a lot more depth, yeah.
3: Mm. You no. Know? I mean, there was probably a stage in my career when I was happy with being that, mm-hmm. you know, I was kind of like in, you know, I quite enjoyed the going after those big stories. I still do get a buzz from that. But, um, you know, if there's somebody, you know, out there that can be we can find or whatever. But um, it's just newspapers are really cold mediums. Mm-hmm. You actually can get. Unless I suppose somebody's writing an opinion piece and maybe if you can get yourself through it to the end, you can get a sense of what they're like. But I do think that it is a cold medium and, uh, audio is fabulous. I love it. I love the sense of, and podcasting I particularly like because I think you get a little bit of, um, like people who are going to bother listening have to feel they get to know you a little bit and yeah. that there's a little bit, not to be unprofessional about it, but that they feel that they're sitting across from you and that.
1: yeah but like when I even when I met people here I know today that I've never met before people that listen to the podcast and they feel like they know me and to mm. a certain extent they do because they listen to me every week and we talk about our personal stories and you know we have guests on so you get a great connection with people you know um, and I love podcasting myself because I suppose the independence that you have you know there's no time limit there's nobody setting agendas mm-hmm. for us you can kind of do what you want to do and, um, you know, we, we're doing this now a little over a year
2: and uh, it's
1: going really well.
2: And it doesn't matter what you say. No, it, when you know, when you come to a stage, if something really comes out of your mouth and it doesn't make too much sense, which happens quite a bit with me, so. <laughs> yeah. I held so, myself, mate. Yeah, but, you know, um, there's something there. Uh, you know, Your line of work, you know, starting off, was there any motive behind your uh, work as in these big gangland criminals, or was it just you wanting to make a change and bring these fellas out and get them off the streets? Or
3: Oh, God, no, I didn't think I was getting them off the streets mm. or anything like that. I think I probably did have a sense of justice that I took a while to realise that I had. You know, yeah. like, I mean, I was coming from a um, very middle-class background, you know. Um, I... There was no sort of journalism in my family. There was nothing like that. So in a way, I kind of came into it and didn't really know. Like I was just flapping about trying to work out what it was. But as I kind of settled into it and started, I mean, what really would uh, draw me is the stories, the storytelling. And the sort of a lot of the time I'm not telling the story. I'm just helping somebody to tell the story. I think that's the skill I have Mm. that I'm able to guide somebody in how to tell their story themselves. Mm. And that's ultimately what I'd like to do, you know. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, the day job is probably still writing the stories in the Sunday world and getting the front pages and the headlines and all the rest of it. Now, yeah. that has moved more so into podcasting, which is good.
1: And are you working on anything at the moment outside of the day job? Have you got books coming down I have a book coming
3: or... out now in September and The Clash of the Clans, which is on that whole emergence of the Irish Mafia and how they've infiltrated boxing. So, yeah, very blokey, isn't it? It's just I'm trying to sort of do something a little bit more, I don't know, girly next or something. Maybe it's just sort of (laughs) it's very blokey, really, just even the boxing thing and all that. But it is quite fascinating. And what I've done with that, and which is, again, something I find interesting, is to go back to the social. You know, why did these groups emerge from these parts of Dublin? and you have like, say, the Dublin 8 area, if you look back at the social history of the area, there was big employment there one time in clothing factories and all this. It all went. Then there was a an Ivy Market thing was developed, which was a closed-in market for the street traders to allow them a bit of heat and shelter in the winter. And they were feeding their families by selling clothes, second-hand clothes or whatever, and that closed down. And then... Everything else developed around it, but it was all flashy apartments and there was nothing for them. So that's how it emerged. Yeah, I mean, the it, drugs it's come similar, with the It's similar to Cork here, um, where we're from, the
1: north side of the cities, you know, in, in the 80s, in, in the late 70s, in the early 80s, when these states were being built, there'd been a lot of industry in Cork, you know, and mm. then you had, you know, with the recession, you have Ford's closed, Dunlop's closed, all the textiles closed. So then when you have a lot of working class people that we're working in industries that are no longer there, poverty really is at the core of it, you know. And as long as you have uh, poverty, inequality, and uh, and stuff like that, you're always going to have crime. And I think a lot of the stuff like for people in prison, um, it's not that you wake up in the morning and uh, when you're a child and you're asked you want, what you want to be when you grow older. people don't say I want to be I want to be a kingpin a cocaine kingpin. Mm. All children want to be firefighters, you know, astronauts, doctors, these things, you know. But as you get older, depending on where you're living and the family you come from, um, you soon, you soon realise that I'm not going to be an astronaut or a doctor, but what will you give me that type of money is this, mm-hmm. you know, currying yeah. drugs around when I'm 14. That's it, you know. yeah. I never heard of Bal- Balenciaga Runners or know? Canada Goose Jackets until think? the K District. Remember that TV yeah. show? Yeah, yeah, Like, I see, yeah. they they rated this young fella as Gaff, he was only 16. He had a wash bag worth 800 euros. I know. <laughs> like, fuck, <book. laughs> <laughs> I think that was my wedding suit. (laughs) uh,
2: There's
3: certain stores in Dublin and I swear to God, like, I won't name them, but like, I go in, I can just see them. They're the only ones with the money mm
2: -hmm.
3: to buy the the handbag and the, you know, whatever else. And you can just, you can just see it. They're actually going to start training of some of the department stores now to see some money laundering Mm -hmm. for cash purchases and all the rest of it. But look, that's all really secondary in a way. That's the kind of stuff that, Um, you know, there's a bit of the colour around it. But what's really going on, I suppose, is going back to the childhoods. I mean, in some cases, if the family are involved, and I know one particular family that the grandparents are, actually, they're about to become great-grandparents and they are living off the proceeds of drugs. Very, very, you know, having a very nice lifestyle of it. They're actually sending their grandchildren out to sell drugs Mm. and there's been people murdered within the family unit.
2: Uh, I find that extraordinary. It's insane. It's absolute. Your Mm. grandchildren, like, I mean, I I can actually understand that mentality, mm. you know, because once upon a time I would have had that mentality until I broke away from it. I can understand it and it's completely nuts. And that's the way I was before I was completely off my game. Mm. You know, Um, I didn't understand too much about the normal world or how people really lived, you know, because in my head, everybody thought like I did and lived the same life I did, Mm. you know. So it's completely insane for somebody to do something like that. And it shows value for life as well. It shows, you know, that there's no awareness there of the consequences of their actions on on the younger generation. I Mm -hmm. I think
1: in a a, a society where we can be very... uh, uh, a consumer society where we're very materialistic that um, you can use any means necessary to get your possession and sometimes mm-hmm. it's your own family members you know mm-hmm. which is yeah. shocking okay, Like, <laughs> we leave it there we yeah thanks Nicola all right Mind thanks the very much the thanks. and uh, thanks to thanks to the Everyman Palace for putting on the shows for us and for the invitation to have two live shows and thanks to everybody that came I'm really proud that we have such a loyal following and you you know it's great and in March we're going to have two big shows inside in the Everyman Palace so we'll have 650 each night so um, if you know any good guests give us a show. So uh, look everybody enjoy the final and have a nice Sunday.
2: Thank you. (laughs) hey.
0: Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie